0: This podcast is made possible by listeners who can contribute now at thestory.org and in collaboration by Burt's Bees, Red Hat, and the Redwoods Group Foundation, who believe by working together we can help strengthen communities for a better world.
1: I'm Dick Gordon. This is The Story. Our series, Reworking Jobs in America continues today with stories of interns and beer tap handles and hiring and firing. Deborah Troutman was in human resources most of her working life. That's how she met her husband, Paul Murphy. She was doing HR at an architecture firm, and Paul was working there. But when there wasn't enough work to
0: keep Paul on,
1: it was Deb who had to let him go.
0: One evening we went to dinner, and I said to Paul, we really don't have work for you right now. There's not another project. And... I need to let you know that we're going to end your contract, and I need you to give me your badge and your keys. And, uh, but I'll still take you to dinner. So, <laughs> so that worked out all right. <laughs> I think he knew it was coming. He yeah. had been doing contract work, but it, it always catches people off guard because you never are quite sure if somebody's not talking to you about it that it's going to happen. Deborah
1: and Paul made a pact. They didn't talk about work at home unless they had to. Later on, they moved from St. Louis to Southern California, and they were working together again. Soon after that, Deb realized that she was going to have to fire her husband again.
0: Paul went out um, on leave to have a hip replacement, and we were living together at that time. We had just gotten married, and... I knew that things were not going well at work. The principal that was in that office was having struggles with Paul communication-wise, relationship-wise. There were uh, disagreements about how work was done. And while he was out on leave, the, my boss in Detroit, the CFO, talked to me about the fact that they were going to replace Paul. Paul and not have him return from his disability. Uh, While he was on leave, and I realized this was happening, I would go home and talk with him and say, you're really not happy in that job. So maybe during this time, it would be good to think about what you want to do next and, and look for something else.
1: Wait a minute. You couldn't say anything to him about the fact that you knew they were planning on terminating him?
0: That's right that 's right, wow. and um, uh, during the time I knew this was going on, and Paul was off for six weeks, and this was about two weeks into his disability leave i was um, I realized that I would need to prepare legally so the company was not uh, at at risk when they let him go, and what that involved was writing a job description to hire a person that did not do his kind of work, that did more contract work and was in the field. And so Designing a job his... that, that
1: Paul didn't fit,
0: basically, is what you had
1: right. to do, right? Right. But at the same time, you had to put in place the pieces at the company side so your own husband couldn't sue the company after he was let go. That's correct. All right, I'm seeing you getting stretched very thin. Here <laughs> <between priorities.
0: laughs> I was. I was. I uh there were days I cried on the way to work and cried on the way home because I knew that it both situations were were just you know, personally very challenging and uncomfortable
1: and painful. Yeah, because it's your allegiance to your job which you take very seriously and then your commitment
0: right. to your husband, right? That's right. Right. And even though I knew probably this was the right situation for them and for him it It is the situation, particularly in California, that there weren't architecture jobs. Uh, this was during two thousand nine. Uh, their jobs were drying up, construction was on hold at a lot of places, so there weren't opportunities out there to continue to pursue his career so i you know I had that in the back of my mind meanwhile. Trying to keep the company safe from litigation, um, encouraging Paul and to think about what he wanted to do next, and supporting him and helping to support his therapy during his rehabilitation from the hip surgery. So it was an incredibly difficult situation. It probably was. It definitely was the worst situation in my career. How did it play out? It played out that uh, Paul started to ask questions about whether he, would, um, whether he was going to lose his job. This is and, before
1: he went back. He had these suspicions, right?
0: Yes. Okay. Um, I think he could detect the discomfort that I had and uh, my continuing to say, well, maybe you should look for a different job, along <laughs> with understanding that this wasn't a place that he really could do the kind of work that he wanted to do and there were conflicts before he left. Uh, so I, uh, he asked, you know, what are my legal rights as far as, you know, I'm on disability, I'm over the age of 50, I was doing the job that they hired me for, and I said, well, you know, what I tell every employee is if you have a concern about this, I can't advise you. You need to look at the websites that will give you the information that you need, the Equal Employment Opportunity website, the ADA uh look at all those. And you you need to determine for yourself what what avenue you're going to take with that.
1: But in this case you you knew what Paul's chances were at at uh conducting a, a successful lawsuit against the company, right?
0: Right. They were uh we were very organized and
1: We we the company uh, here.
0: The company and right. the attorney in constructing a situation where there wouldn't be um a case you knew that yeah but I you knew couldn't that. tell paul that <laughs> right and at that point when they really started to discuss severance and i had very front end uh, voice in in the process where i said you need to take into consideration these things is you know health insurance and is shares of stock and all of that in in putting together a package, I then said, I need to back out. This is really a conflict of interest at this point because it's dealing with the financial and emotionally I'm I'm too involved yeah, right no now. Kidding. It's getting too hard. And I did. And there were times that the, the chief financial officer would call and say, what do you think? Would he accept something like this? And I say, well, I'm not sure. That doesn't quite seem fair with considering what we came to California for and what he was hired to do. Basically, and you
1: were able to then jump to the other side of the fence and be the HR
0: person representing Paul and Deb's best interest, right? Right, right. It was it was a really, really painful road to walk, and it began to come very close to the time that he was coming back within a week or two. He still didn't and know. I knew that. Right? He still did not know, although there were suspicions. Sure. He hadn't really had conversations with the people in the office.
1: So who told him?
0: Well, that was interesting, too, because the people who were involved in telling him really skated the issue. Uh, Paul went into the office. They asked him to come in to discuss his position. At that point, they were pretty fair with what they offered, and that, that made that easier.
1: Yeah, but there must have been a moment, Deb, when Paul came home from the office and said, all right, how long have you known about this?
0: Right. And I said I I had known for weeks and had been working on it. And I want to let you know that the way the company had prepared for this legally and structurally— was pretty airtight that there wasn't he they took care of themselves and i did have a part in some of that
1: well i'd have been angry if i was paul listening to you say that
0: well paul wasn't angry he i think throughout this process there was some hurtfulness and disappointment he knew that that dis- decision didn't come from me, oh, and for sure, yeah. that we we really were both professionals and had high regard for each other and our work. And, and at no point he said, "You could have told me." Well, I, I'm sure he said that, and I'm not remembering that uh, clearly, maybe. But it it was it was the it was the elephant in the room that it you know there was there was a time and a way to not just hint about that but to disclose that a little more fully um, and, and when it, it was out, all
1: yeah when <laughs> it was all there on the kitchen table did paul turn to you and say hey do you think i can sue these guys
0: yes he did and i said i don't think so it was an 11-page severance agreement longer than i had seen it was very well constructed i didn't have a part in that but the legal counsel was excellent. I had worked with them on other cases, another ADA case. And I, I knew they were very good at putting that together. So it was very risk averse. Uh, when he asked me that, I said, Paul, after reading it, I really don't think you have a case. I know you were disabled and you're over 40, which is the legal age for discrimination lawsuit, but I don't believe you're protected under the law based on their decision to restructure and and have a new position and basically eliminate your position, not terminate you. So... Uh, he,
1: and he said, well, you know this business better than I do. I, I'll take your word for it.
0: No, he did not he uh paul decided it would be good to find an attorney and to fi- get some counsel on this because there still was there was there was pain really associated with how he was told and the fact that he wasn't treated with the kind of respect and integrity that should have been at the end so there were it was an emotional thing as much as a a knowledge of, yeah, okay, this is really what, what is going to mm-hmm. happen, and I really don't have any rights, but there might have been.
1: Not long after that, Deborah Chautman moved to another company. This was in the fall of 2008, the same time when the banks and house prices started to tumble. Deb was told that she was being let go. It was hard for her. Even though she was a human resources specialist, she called her husband, Paul, and said, I have no job. I don't know what to do. We'll continue their story in just a moment. I'm Dick Gordon from APM, American Public Media. This is the story. I'm Dick Gordon. This is the story. Deborah Treutman and her husband, Paul Murphy, were working in California. But early on in the recession, they were both let go. Both in their 50s. Neither one with work, both struggling to find anyone who'd take a second look at a job application. Deb and Paul decided to go back to St. Louis to take advantage of the lower cost of living there. It was also a place where they had family and a better professional network. But Deborah was still unable to land a full-time job.
0: We live very frugally. We've had major lifestyle changes. We do not go to the store. If we don't need something, we don't get it. Well, if we—I'm sorry—if we I'm sorry, if we don't want something, if we just want something and it's not a necessity, we don't buy it. We um, change the way we eat. We don't eat a lot of meat. We don't buy new clothes. I shop primarily at resale stores and Goodwill. Paul wears clothes forever that he's had. So we just settled into a new lifestyle. We didn't have Christmas trees. We didn't give gifts for a period of time. And people understood that. So it, uh, it was tough because I hadn't lived like that. Paul had lived like that off and on yeah. through his architecture career, but I had not. And I applied for food stamps, and we did that for about four months.
1: Do you remember that day, going in to fill out the forms?
0: I do it uh, I had a I had a vision that it really was going to be people that were almost homeless and not almost really almost not employable and I was surprised while there were people there and there were children there and the office was crazy and busy and very bureaucratic and cold there were people there that were professionals And when I had my time to sit for the interview, I was told that there was an attorney there, you know, collecting food stamps. There were a lot of professionals. I had a master's degree, and I was sitting there and saying I can't find employment, and I need food stamps. I never in my life, in my career of 22 years, with my credentials and my experience, thought I'd be in that situation. It wasn't embarrassing. It was just really sad to to be at the point that I needed to get that kind of aid. Um, we didn't have really any income coming in and could, didn't have resources to rely on. Paul's family helped a lot. I didn't have family that could. I began making jewelry, and in the same time I was collecting food stamps, was able to, in December of 2011, sell about $700 in jewelry Uh, and that almost paid the rent, so we had a little money here and there coming in. And we just kept on like that for about four months until I was hired again.
1: And so your eligibility for food stamps, your need for assistance, that sort of fluctuates depending on what kind of short-term contract you might get then.
0: Yes. We're at the point that we have applied for food stamps again. I had two interviews at Trader Joe's and was very hopeful about that. Having been in human resources, I had the people skills and the excitement and the personality and the sense of humor that I thought was pretty much a shoo-in. Mm-hmm. Uh, they offer benefits to part-time employees. And I thought between that and making jewelry and trying to find a little contract work, we could make a go of it. Paul still has his part-time job that he had. And that's just 16 hours a week, but it is a little bit of income. And with food stamps and un- unemployment, if I was working part time, I could get part partial unemployment. Uh, we could probably make it another few months. So I think we're looking at about March now. Of
1: what what came of the Trader Joe's conversations?
0: Well, I didn't get that position. <laughs> they have a lot of candidates applying, and I think at times. When you look at, and Paul applied also, when you look at our age, and they're very, very good about hiring a diverse group of people, yet they do have, you, know, you have to be able to lift stock and move it. Um, you, you know, it's, it's a difficult thing to, even though I said, this is something that I really want to do. I'm tired of corporate environment. I would like to do this and find other part-time work. And as long as I have benefits, I can do that. I'd love to move up in the company. I think in a lot of ways it's still not very believable that someone with a master's degree who's done human resources for 22 years and was making 75000 would take this job making $13 an hour. I think that's just really hard to believe that, that you will stay with a job like that.
1: Deborah Troutman joined us from St. Louis. You're listening to the story and our series, Reworking. One way that a lot of people get into a workplace is as an intern. It's often unpaid work, but it's a chance to be seen and get some experience. There was a time when it was mainly for students, but that's also changed. A few years ago, Eric Glatt decided to leave his job at AIG and focus on a passion of his, film production. He was taken on to work with the crew in the film Black Swan. Eric was 40 and working as an unpaid intern. He eventually sued Fox Searchlight Productions, claiming his internship was illegal. But as Eric tells it, that wasn't his intention at the
2: outset. So when the opportunity presented itself to work with a named director with named talent, uh, you know, on a studio picture, I I asked some friends um, who were in the industry what they thought about doing that for free and... Gave it some serious thought, and, you know, the the conclusion was, well, if you can afford to do it, it might open up a lot of doors. Yeah. And, uh yeah, go for it.
1: And And when you started then as an unpaid intern, did you have any idea how long you would remain unpaid?
2: No, there was no expectation that after a certain period of time it would become a paid position. It was understood right from the get-go this would be real productive work to help finish the movie. For which I would not be paid, as it was for the other, you know, two dozen or so other unpaid interns filling positions throughout the production.
1: How did you afford all like over a year of working unpaid?
2: Well, I was able to live off of savings. Um, I know that for a lot of young people who are stuck in this trap, what they end up doing is relying on their their parents generosity or credit cards or that kind of thing.
1: And and what exactly were you doing then for the film company?
2: Uh, well, so while Black Swan was in production, I was I performed all the normal duties of someone who would uh, be normally given the job title accounting clerk. So that meant I worked in the accounting department, uh, which had four other full time employees, uh, and I performed all the normal clerk duties, which included uh, assisting with. Filing and paperwork, petty cash, receipts, uh, purchase orders, running to and from set uh, to get signatures or to pick up receipts or to deliver more petty cash—you know, whatever it might be—normal job functions of an accounting department clerk.
1: Did Did you like the work?
2: Oh yeah, no. the The work was as I expected. Uh, it was. Uh, engaging, interesting work, you know, for accounting. Uh, but it gave me the kind of bird's eye view I was hoping to get by uh, working in the accounting department and getting a better understanding of cash flow and the kind of decisions that get made and how to keep all your you know your books balanced and a good perspective of filmmaking uh, for a larger budget picture. And yeah, I thought that was interesting and valuable.
1: And and so what happened then? I mean, it, you weren't. To listen to you describe that, you weren't becoming increasingly disgruntled and going, oh, I'm not getting paid. I'm going to sue these guys.
2: No, yeah. I certainly did not go into the into the job uh, looking for a lawsuit. Right towards the end of the full-time production, my, my time on uh, the production, the New York Times ran an article by uh, Steve Greenhouse titled something along the lines, um, Unpaid Internships Legal or Not? And he highlighted, or the article highlighted, how the Department of Labor had not too long before issued a fact sheet highlighting this very strict six-point test that any unpaid internship at a for-profit business needs to satisfy for it to be exempt from minimum wage laws.
1: Okay, so you look at the six-point checklist, and you're going, wait a
2: <laughs> what yeah, once I Yeah, exactly. Well, once I start reading up on it, I'm like this is crystal clear. This is not a gray area. This is cut and dry, crystal clear, a violation of the labor law. And the more I thought about why that law was in place and how it was there to really protect the minimum wage, which itself was a a hard-won battle, uh, you know, going all the way back to the the New Deal, Um, and the more I saw when I was done with my internship how pervasive this really was, how, you know, for example, going back to this, this edit training place, uh, called the Edit Center uh, that I was had been trained at. You know, they had a, a job board which would post job opportunities for other graduates, more than half of which were unpaid internships. And nobody makes any, any pretension that these are training opportunities the way that the law would require, right? The law requires that if you're a for-profit employer and you have someone in your facilities getting training, whether you call them an intern or whatever you want to call them, the employer doesn't receive any benefit from the labor of the intern right otherwise you're undermining the minimum wage law because right. if if the employee is just using an internship to get labor and not have to pay somebody why have a minimum wage at all
1: well yeah you i mean you look at that that checklist of of you know what defines an intern and the one that jumped out at me was are you using this person to replace someone who you would normally have to pay to do this work, and I'm I'm looking at you as an accounting clerk and thinking, well, yeah, that's exactly what you were well, doing. Well, and right? that's
2: how interns are used throughout this industry, and journalism, and you know, go on and on and on. Fine art galleries, it, it's 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 absolutely pervasive, and almost nobody makes any pretense whatsoever that they are not deriving benefit. In fact, people when they try to defend the practice say. Why would I have an unpaid intern if I didn't get any benefit from them?
1: Well, let me, let me ask you something, though. I mean, you've gone through a year-long unpaid internship to establish some credentials in the film industry. Yep. You enjoyed the work. I'm assuming your colleagues enjoyed you. Yep. There must have been part of you thinking, if I go ahead with this lawsuit, I will never work in this industry.
2: Absolutely. That was that was one of the many reasons that I didn't come forward right away. Um,
1: and what turned it for you?
2: Well, you know, I think that it had a lot to do with the fact that uh, when I saw how absolutely taken for granted the practice was and how it was a very real hindrance to my being able to pursue my chosen career path, I realized after a certain amount of time that there was more I could do by challenging this practice than by uh, pursuing, you know, a, a position on the next Hollywood blockbuster.
1: And so, when the story of your suit became public, what was the reaction?
2: It was interesting. Yeah, I did have some people, you know. Obviously, uh, when it when it first hit the internet, there was a lot of traffic uh, to the effect of, uh, you know, what you'd put forward before. You know, these guys will never work again. Um, that's That's crazy. A lot of people who just saw the headline and misunderstood. Oh, this is about uh, disgruntled Gen Y kids who don't like the fact that working means taking out the trash and making coffee. Um, But also you started to see over time uh, in the public response, uh, slowly people started to get it more and more. And And the thing is, we filed our lawsuit within... A week or two of the beginning of Occupy Wall Street. So, walking into the internship, the the discussion about inequality and our broken economic system was not on the front burner the way it was once the Occupy Wall Street movement also uh, hit the press. And I think that the combination of that and the fact that that's what it turned out we were really talking about. We weren't talking about, um, you know, there was some kind of whining case. Um,
1: Yeah, this was about companies trying to get something for for free. For free, right. My my understanding is that there have been a couple of fairly significant changes since your suit was filed, right? Like Charlie Rose uh, is going to pay sort of a form of back pay or pay interns who've been uh, working on that television program over the past years, right?
2: Yeah, the Charlie Rose Show was also subject to a class action lawsuit. Um, I know that there's discussion of a settlement. I think it. uh, I'm not an expert on it, uh, about the, the status of it right now. My understanding is it needs to be approved by a judge before it's official. But, yeah, it looks like the Charlie Rose Show has settled their unpaid internship lawsuit. Uh, I've also heard from people, uh, including an unpaid intern uh, from Black Swan, who continued to work in the industry. That you know, she told me off the record. You know, she's been on many productions since then, and not only have all the interns been paid, that she's heard people say that one of the reasons why all the interns are being paid is they're afraid of getting sued in, in light of our lawsuit.
1: And so, do you think that this, uh, the kind of growth of the phenomenon of the unpaid intern? may be be turning. We may go back to where interns were looking for a a bit of work experience while they were at college or that sort of thing.
2: Well, even a college student doing labor at a for-profit business uh, is entitled to pay.
1: So we have college students who work as interns on this program. Should I second-guess that or feel guilty about it?
2: Well, I don't think you personally need to feel guilty. Um, This is about a business practice, not about... uh, your your character,
1: <laughs> no. But are you saying that should? Are you saying that should be reconsidered as, as well?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Are, is your show benefiting from having an unpaid laborer there? Yes, is seven dollars twenty five cents something you can't find? uh maybe. Is your program a, a non profit? Yeah, we're non profit.
1: I mean, it's just one of those things where you. Profit, nonprofit isn't really a, a big difference. Eventually, you've got to find the money to do it,
2: right? And, and Yeah, so- I mean, this is one of the things that clouds the water for a lot of people. You know, they'll say, well, you can volunteer at a nonprofit, so what's the difference? Well, one thing is, are you calling the person a volunteer or are you calling them an, an intern? Unpaid labor, volunteer labor at a nonprofit is really only meant to be incidental, not, not part of your normal business practices. But even from an ethical point of view, getting a little bit closer to your initial question, should you be paying? I think absolutely. I think... If we want to have a healthy job market, you know, as I said before, I think it's to the benefit of a college student, recent graduate, whoever they might be, to get paid for their labor. Um, I think if we look at the job market today for young people, it's really astounding how absolutely horrible the responsible adults have made it for young people.
1: That's Eric Glatt. By the way, I was told after the conversation that most of the students who work with us get college credit for their time here. As far as you're concerned, does that make a difference? Do you think the practice of taking on unpaid interns is a problem? You can contact us at our website, thestory.org. Coming up next, American beer tap handles are currently made in China, but the man who runs that company is starting to do some work here in the U.S. I'm Dick Gordon from APM, American Public Media. This is The Story.
0: Support for the story comes from the Redwoods Group Foundation, collaborating with Darkness to Light and local YMCAs to prevent child sexual abuse in America. D the number two L dot org.
1: I'm Dick Gordon, this is the story. Full Steam, Rolling Rock, Dogfish Head. The people who make beer and sell it always have a story to tell. Be honest, if you sit at a bar and ask for a beer and the bartender asks which brand. You look at the row of those tall, shiny tap handles. Guinness, Great Lakes, Goose Island. What do you choose? Paul Fichter figured out some years ago that the tap handle itself is a part of the sale. Now, the first ones he sold some 14 years ago, he made himself. He painted them on the balcony of his girlfriend's apartment. But as the orders grew, Paul decided to see if they could be made in China. Early on, that wasn't easy.
3: There's constant back and forth, and constant problems. Um, I remember one order for a brewery um, in Minnesota where they had sent me the order, and I had forwarded it on to my agent in Hong Kong, and had about probably three months to get this done. Which and is following loads up of every, time, right? Yeah, following up every couple of weeks. How's it going? Oh, everything's fine. It's on time. Mamontai is, is the scariest words in Chinese to me. Um, of course, a Chinese person wouldn't understand that because I didn't say it right, but it means uh, don't worry. And uh, to me, that, those words mean worry very much. But um, the time came for it to ship out of Hong Kong to get to the customer on time, and the supplier said, oh, it's not done. And this was their Oktoberfest release, and Oktoberfest doesn't wait. Um, this customer was going to be in a world of hurt. If they didn't get these handles, they were going to miss their their release of this beer. So I caught the next flight to Hong Kong, went to the agent's office in Hong Kong, this agent had molded all of these handles. These weren't wood. These were plastic. But he hadn't painted them. And so he had all these white, unfinished tap handles in his office. And I sat there with my agent and his wife, and we pulled it all nighter, hand-painting them. You did? Let them dry. Yep, the three of us hand-painted them in his office, and I put them in a box and carried them to Minnesota.
1: Did you make your deadline? I did. And and which which ones were these? What were you painting on that on the tap handles?
3: Well they were little gnomes. <laughs> um uh for the Summit Brewery in uh in Minneapolis. So I painted a lot of little gnomes.
1: This is detailed work painting those designs on beer tap handles.
3: The Alaskan brewery called me in two thousand or two thousand and one and asked for a, a tap handle that looked like a whale jumping out of the water and I thought, how oh, am I gonna do that? And I went to the store and I bought some clay and I sculpted a whale kind of crudely and sent it over to my person in China and said, Can you can you make tap handles that look like this? And and she said, Yeah, we could do that. And it was um the same technology they'd used to make Disney figurines, which they've been doing for forever, pretty much. Molded plastic and then hand painting them and and they sent me back these whale handles and I sent them up to Alaska and they were in beer accounts immediately and on eBay for $100. And the Alaskan brewery was calling back for more and more orders. And I realized at that point that what I was doing wasn't, I wasn't making a functional item that just allowed people to pour beer. I was making a thing that marketed beer. Yeah, somebody sits at was,
1: the bar and they and they see the whale on the tap panel and they say, pull me a pint of that. That looks
3: cool. Exactly. And, and... And um, I was actually making something that communicated with his beer about and sold the beer and was a really effective sales tool. That was the aha moment.
1: But marketing means delivering, and Paul Fichter wanted more control over the tap-handle production. So after a few years of subcontracting his work in China, he decided to build his own factory there.
3: When I was building the factory, I hired a full-time interpreter, and I would ask what I thought was a simple question of the interpreter. What color is this that 's probably a little bit more simple than I asked, but and then this they would have a, a five minute conversation between the interpreter and the person I was asking, like how you know what are you guys talking about? you know football? Why are you guys taking so long right and then the answer would come back red <laughs> <laughs> and, or mom <moment>, died, don't worry <laughs> um, and I was just astounded, but what I learned over time was that that these people came from different parts of China. My interpreter was from Hong Kong. Maybe the person he's speaking to was from an outlying part of China, and they actually had a very difficult time understanding each other, and so they would have to describe the word they were talking about uh, so they were sure they were talking about the same thing. And so now I'm much more more patient about that. Um, there was another time where a customer in the United States wanted a buffalo. a tap handle looked like a buffalo. and we described a buffalo to our sculptors in China. We sent them pictures. But they kept on sending us cows back, and the, they, Cause had they had no, no idea what a, what a buffalo was, <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, yeah, there were a lot of stories like that.
1: And I'm I'm wondering if you ever got any criticism for investing as you were in China instead of you know trying to do it in the U.S.
3: Well, yes, it's a. Uh, You know, there is a fact that millions of Americans have been displaced by work going to China, where the labor rates are very low compared to the United States. Although they're going up very fast in China, our our rates are up three hundred percent since two thousand six, and increasing double digits all of the time. And it's even with those fast wage increases in China, it's still hard to get enough workers. It's always a challenge to get staff in China, which is not what people might uh, think of. Yeah, why
1: is that? I thought that there was a, you know, sort of a never-ending supply of of people eager to work.
3: Well, their one-child policy is working. There has been, you know, a vast amount of people all over the world sending work to China and they're at capacity with the, you know, pretty much everybody's got a job.
1: Yeah, they're just running out of workers.
3: And so, but in in the bigger picture, I see this as actually a vast human good. So, you know, there there are, I'm not denying that there's real hurt on these Western workers who have been displaced. So there's millions of Western workers who have been displaced, but there's billions of Chinese whose lives have come out of desperate poverty. I was a child. My mom told me to eat my food because uh, there were starving children in China, and that's not something you hear anymore. So there's. If you just play on the American team, it's a bad thing, but if you play on the human team, I think there's actually a vast human good that's been done that this billions of people are no longer in poverty, and we have a side benefit here of cheap iphones and 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 inexpensive things at walmart
1: and Paul, how do you stay on top of things like work safety in China? You know the stories that we read here about you know overwork at Foxconn or you know suicide rates among chinese workers are being asked to put in too long hours or they breathe bad fumes or you know that how how do you how do you make sure that that's something that you keep an eye on
3: so we are very careful to follow all of the regulations in fact it's um especially in terms of the work hours this is a really big challenge for us because the the workforce that wants to leave their home in inland China and come live in a dormitory in Southeast China. They're not in Southeast China to have fun. Um, Their families are back, you know, a thousand miles away. They want to come work, work, work. And we can attract those people by giving them lots of work and overtime. But the regulations say we can only give them, you know, so many hours of work year. So by following those rules, we're actually at a deficit in recruiting because, those people that really want to work the most, we can't, uh, retain. Um, but, but it's, but it's, to me, it's an easy decision and it's the right thing to follow these rules. And that's just what we're going to do. But lots of people have lots of ways around these. Um, most factories in China are said to have, uh, multiple sets of books, one for the government, one for their real use. There's a lot of double bookkeeping and we've just, kept it on the street, and, and dealt with the consequences.
1: Paul Fichter is constantly looking at the flow of work. He recently decided to open a factory back in the U.S. That means that he'll have workers in both countries. The operation in Washington state will make those big signs for pubs and the kind of sandwich board advertisements that advertise lunch specials and what's on tap.
3: The original plan was to make these signs in China, actually, and we expanded the factory there, and we bought an expensive digital printer to do the work there, and we were unable to get that uh, printer to work there. The The vendor couldn't supply it with ink that was fresh enough. The workers couldn't operate the machine. You know, China does have a whole lot of unskilled labor, but when you want skilled labor to run a, a tech machine like this, that's, that's a big challenge. And so we just had a complete failure there, and to boot... Our customers weren't going to put up with the lead time, and so that was just a complete failure to make it there. And so we had this really expensive printer. What are we going to do? It's not working out in China. So I, I redid the math. It hadn't occurred to me off the, out of the gate to to put it in the United States, but redid the math. Well, actually, we can save all the lead time. We don't have to worry about this labor, and it it makes sense. And so we shipped the printer to Seattle and built a factory around it, and that's actually going very well now.
1: This is like a, what, a 40,000-square-foot factory you've got in Woodinville, Washington, right?
3: Yes. Yeah, we have several dozen workers there now, and we are uh, very busily uh, working on expanding our capacity there.
1: I'm curious, Paul, if your decision to move some work back to the U.S. had anything to do with anything other than just good, common business sense? I mean, obviously you wouldn't do it if it didn't make sense, but was there a part of you going, this would actually not be a bad thing to create a few jobs back here at home?
3: I I knew it would be well received and I knew I'd like the reception, but really, the decision was a business one. It was good business to bring it back. Yeah. Um, you know, personally I am I'm exhausted with travel to China and so there's a personal relief to it. But uh, really, the, it was the right thing for the business, and that was the the decision. The Chicago factory is even more clear in that there we are printing beer glasses, and glasses are very expensive to ship. They're fragile. There's very large duties. And it made 100% sense to do that in the United States rather than China. We have a, a very amazing automated machine there that can print a beer glass every second with uh, inks that don't use any lighter cadmium. A lot of the stuff in China, you don't really know what's in the the materials. Uh, But uh, when we buy it in the United States or from Germany, we know that what says on the box is what we're going to get, which really comes back to a lot of the other things about China that my attorney in China, when he visits the United States, he will pack his bags full of milk formula because he's got a, a baby and he doesn't trust the product he'll buy at a Chinese store to be what it says.
1: Are there tax advantages to you as a businessman to, to bring production back to the U.S.?
3: The investments we made in the last two years, uh, they, there was um, expedited depreciation for investments made in the United States. So had I uh, left that printer in China, I wouldn't have been able to depreciate it as fast. So, um, but I don't think they, i don't think any of that is going forward into 2013 or forward. Right. Um, if I had one thing to say to Washington, it's growing a business that requires lots of cash, and by uh, that bonus, that uh, expedited depreciation is really a, a big thing that helps me grow jobs. The government still gets their money. This not decreasing my tax at all. It's just changing the timing to help help with the growth
1: and And how do you look ahead in terms of uh what's going to be done in China a year from now or two years from now? What will you have done in in the u s Is this something that you're kind of constantly monitoring based on how the wages are going up in china or, or 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 all the other factors that you have to look at
3: yeah there's a there's a constant balancing, and I looked actually very hard at other Asian countries um labor rates in the Philippines and Indonesia and um, many other Southern Asian countries are quite a bit less than China now, but it didn't make sense to move production to any of those relative to the United States um, in that the political systems in those countries were very scary to me at least. The infrastructure wasn't there. The supplier base... And in China we have you know, a vast network of suppliers. If we need a shiny metal part to put on top of a tap handle, we know who to call. If we need a, if we need a, a blue anodized overcoating to put on something, we know who to call. And there's, so there's this really excellent network of factories all around southeastern China that can do all the intricate detail work we need. And I didn't find those things anywhere else in Asia. And in fact, the executive I spoke to in the United States also have concerns that a lot of this detail metal work and a lot, there's a lot of work that is really only done in Southeast China now. And that if you want to, if you're a cabinet maker and you want a special handle made for your cabinet, the really only place to get that now is in China. So we'll see what happens with that because that's, that's that's still labor intensive work to, to make a custom handle for a cabinet. And uh, China I think is still going to stay ahead on, on that labor intensive work for quite some time where we can take the labor out, I think that uh, the advantage is coming home.
1: That's Paul Fichter. He's the founder and president of Tap Handles. You can see his company's handiwork at a bar near you. Many of you have contacted us about what you're hearing in our series. Earlier this week, I talked with Christine Myrick. Christine was a manager in the Kansas City government for more than a decade before she was laid off. Now she's working an entry-level position at a bank. Phoebe Judge is producer of this series, and she's here with me in the studio. You've been looking at the mail, Phoebe, uh, and a fair amount of it.
4: And a lot of people responding to Christine Myrick's story, either Feeling sorry for her, and in the same boat, or other people saying she needs to pull herself up and uh, and take responsibility for what her life has become. We heard from Edward McGinnis of Columbus, Ohio, who said, "I felt compelled to write. I too have been unemployed for over two years, and this story parallels mine. I was a director of marketing for the public transit here. I'm 56 years old, and my prospects are non-existent. It scares me to think I could settle for a $12 an hour dead-end job, as your guest described."
1: And there's another letter here from Robin Brigman of Youngsville, North Carolina. Robin writes to say, I'm very sorry for the woman from Kansas. However, I feel that she was probably overpaid and underutilized in her position. Project managers are often in this category. In the past 26 years, my husband has been laid off three times. I am sure, Robin goes on to say, that your guest's age played a role in her situation, and that just sucks. But I get the feeling her attitude has played a role as well. I've never made $90,000 a year, but I've worked very hard for every dollar I made. Your guest seems to look down on those of us who aren't sitting at the cool kids' lunch table. And now that she isn't sitting there anymore, she's full of sour grapes.
4: And Felicia Williams wrote in to say, well, first off, her her, her email is titled, Working Six Jobs. She wrote in and said, I graduated with an MPA and public policy graduate certificate in May. I've been taking work wherever I can get it. I have an administrative clerical job that I contract for 20 hours a week. I do contract work five hours a week for two different nonprofits. I work for a content marketing firm for five hours a week. I help manage my husband's law firm, and I also take web development projects where I can get them. This isn't sustainable, and there's no end in sight. My husband and I are the most well-educated, dirt-poor people I know. Thanks for highlighting the struggles that normal American families are still going through. The stock markets and corporate profits seem to be recovered, but the American people are far from it.
1: All right, thanks, Phoebe, and we encourage you to uh, continue writing with your stories and your thoughts on what you're hearing in our series, Reworking Jobs in America. Our series concludes tomorrow with Sean Cole in New York, where he's found just how many jobs are being created by the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy. I'm Dick Gordon. This is The Story.
0: Support for the story comes from Burt's Bees, natural health and beauty care, on a mission to make people's lives better naturally for over 25 years. Burt'sBees.com.
2: The story is a production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, a broadcast service of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill.
1: And this is APM American Public Media.